Okay. Psalm 32. Psalm 32. That'll be the passage we'll be utilizing to what level, I don't know, but just have it ready to go. If we were to list all of the certainties in life, things that are absolutely certain, typically people say death and taxes. Okay, that's a, that's a, if people always say that, death and taxes. All right, but for our, for our benefit, we're not going to talk about death or taxes. We're going to talk about two other absolute certainties in the life of a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, there are two certainties that you'll face. There's probably more, obviously, but two for our, for our discussion. And those are temptation. Every Christian is going to be tempted. And we're going to be tempted to, do, to either think, speak, desire, feel, or act in a way contrary to God's word, right? God's word gives us a very black and white standard. Do this, don't do this. Temptation comes to try to get us to think, act, or think, speak, desire, feel, or act in a way contrary to God's word because we, uh, well, yeah, that will just leave it there, right? That's a certainty. That's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's absolute certainty. And the second certainty is, what do you think the second certainty is? What do you think the second certainty is? Yeah, well, it's very much connected to the first one. If the first certainty is temptation, the second certainty is sin. All right? The second certainty is we are going to fall. We are going to fail over and over and over and over again. But I think we can all agree that whether we should or shouldn't, right? Catholics may argue we should. Protestants typically, on one hand, argue we shouldn't, but then we turn around and do. We, let's, be, let's just be honest. Do we treat all sin and all failure the same? We do not. We do not treat it the same. And because we don't treat all sin the same, we don't treat all failure the same. And guess what? Because we don't treat all sin and all failure the same, what else do we not treat the same? What should we do after? We don't treat it the same. Correct? We just don't. For whatever reason, we do not. And I think whenever we talk about temptation, sin, and failure, we, we, we have to, I mean, really, as a Christian, not only do we need a good theology on temptation, understanding it, knowing what it is, uh, just understanding everything about it. We really need a better, I'm going make, make me state this correctly. We need a good, the, not only do we need a good theology of temptation, we need a good theology of what happens after we fall and after we sin, because I don't think the church has a good theology of that. I don't think the church, I don't think the church really is prepared for failure. If you think about it, if you think about the way the church is really designed, it goes something like this, all right? You walk through the front door, right? You can confess everything, right? You can confess heinous sins, horrible sins. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how sinful it is. You can confess it, and all you have to do is say, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior. And what happens to all of that? It goes away. Isn't that an awesome uh, message? That's good news. That brings tears to people's faces. They feel relieved. They feel like a weight has been taken off their back. They feel free. They're like, praise God, salvation. Christianity is the greatest thing in the world. And then what happens? Sin continues to happen. And how does the church respond to that sin? Depending on the sin, it's treated differently, is it not? Right? It may even call into question one's salvation. Yes, especially in the lordship world, right? It, it calls into question everything. And, and a lot of people say, you are forgiven, but now all of a sudden there's a but there. All of a sudden now there's a problem there. And we're like, what, how do we handle this? Now, if you go to Matthew 4, I just think it's an interesting 
verse. I, you, uh, I, you know, I, it, it's one of those things when I, I've been reading Matthew 4 and Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 and all of these passages dealing with temptation. And this one just stood out to me. All right, so in Matthew 4, we know in verse 1, Jesus is led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, right? He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterward was hungered. Satan comes to him with three temptations, right? And Jesus responds to each temptation. Now, the thing with Jesus, he does not what? succumb to that temptation or fall, which is great news because, because of his perfection. But when we put our faith in him, that perfection is imputed to me. So I stand before God, not in my ability to withstand temptation, but in the fact that Christ did, right? right? We, we talked about that, the doctrine of imputation, 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 which it seems is a controversial doctrine in 2023. You can't preach the doctrine of imputation because I guess, I don't know, you're, you're, you're an antinomian and I guess, I don't know what you are. It's just crazy the way that is, what something has cha- changed in the church. But okay, look at verse 11 though. The devil leaves him, we all like that, right? And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now they came and ministered unto him because he hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. He's obviously weak. He's obviously tired. He's obviously now had this confrontation with Satan. And they come and minister to him. Now he did not sin. He did not sin. So I understand this is not a perfect parallel. I know it's not a perfect correlation. But for us, we know two, two certainties. We will be tempted and we will sin, either, either externally or internally. Because even if we don't commit the sin externally, we can be guilty of the sin internally. So what my question is, what is, the, what is the proper way, what is the ministry? Let me state it this way. What is the ministry that we need after we fall? Right? What is the ministry that we need after we fall? And I think there's two categories of ministry. There's the ministry that we need between us and God, right? Right? So I say the ministry we need from God and ourselves, and then possibly the ministry we need from others. Now, I think the church radically fails in how to minister to other people who do so. The church tends to love to do what couple of things? We love to gossip and slander, Sometimes we'll refer to it to praying for other people. And we're praying for other people in order to do what? Uh, to share the fact that the other person has sinned. Like, you know, you know, just sometimes, you know, sometimes this is what I want from Christians. Just don't pray for me. Don't talk to me. Don't talk about me. And just wish that I was dead in your eyes. Like, because it's just like sometimes they're, they're the worst people to come helping you when, when, when it all falls apart, right? Sometimes it does. I'm not saying always, but I'm saying sometimes, all right? So we'll talk about that one, but we wanna, I want to talk about, so once you've sinned, what, what happens? Because you're going to sin. Now, the only problem with talking about this is this is my struggle, is because we know we don't approach this the same way, right? Even in your own life, forget how other people approach it. You don't even approach it the same way, right? Let me ask you a question. Did you sin yesterday? What, what have you done about it? Did, did, any, did you do anything major? Did, was, there, was there any kind of big, anything that happened because of your sin? Are you going to sin today? Oh, you will. Okay, remember, I can just give you three scriptures. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be holy as God is holy. You're going to sin today, right? Therefore, you have failed, right? So what are you going to do about it? Now, see, this is always the problem because we're told we're supposed to do something, right? But we know we don't always do something. So what we have a tendency to do is find passages that talk about, look what this person did after they sinned. But we basically, in our minds, we tend to kind of say that that's only for what? A big sin. Psalm 51 is for what kind of sin? Murder, adultery. Is that for every sin? Psalm 
So, like, there's something there to consider. Let's go to Psalm 32. I, I just, I just, I want to just throw that around because this, these are some of the things I struggle with in even trying to figure out how to approach this subject because I think that there is a, I, I, I think there is an approach to this that is not always right. And I'm not saying Psalm 32 is going to help us, but Psalm 32 is where we're at. So that's what we're going to look at and see, just see what we can do with it. All right. So Psalm 32, how many verses in Psalm 32? 11. All right. So let's, um, I, I didn't think about outlining it, but now, you know, I always, I can't stop myself from doing that. So let, maybe, maybe we're going to work on an outline together. You ready? All right, here we go. Psalm 32. All right. I, and maybe we won't. I don't know. Cause we could, I think if we start trying to outline it, it'll probably end up into 500 disagreements because no one's going to agree on how to outline this. Okay. But all right, here we go. Um, if you have a, if your Bible gives a, maybe a title to the Psalm, what do you have a title? Confession and forgiveness. Okay, so we know some sin is involved here. Now, 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 that's not saying that's inspired, but some Bibles give it. Right? It is a psalm of David, and we know David always has something to confess, right? Because David, I don't know, I don't know if you're aware of this, he committed some pretty you know, grievous sins, right? Sometimes he committed sins that people try to argue wasn't really a sin. Like, you know, when he lied about, hey, I'm on a mission from the king. And, no, you're not. And then all the priests gets killed. And then people are like, well, I don't think David really sinned. And I'm always like, kind of baffled by like, uh, okay, I guess, I guess not. Right? But we, we could go through all of that. Numbering of the people, all the different things that uh, David did. All right. Okay. Everybody got that? Okay, here we go. Um, Psalm 32, verse 1. Was it David who numbered the people or was it Moses? It was David. It was David. Okay, I want to make sure I wasn't, I wasn't blaming him for something he didn't do. He's got enough on his plate. He doesn't need more. Okay, all right. Psalm 32, verse 1. Here we go. Let's just read the 11 verses and then we'll just see how we want to work through this. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly, pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with a song of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with a bit and bridle, lest I come near unto thee, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice ye righteous, and shout for joy uh, all ye that are upright in heart. Now there's a lot in this psalm that we could try to figure out. There's a lot of... Um, for example, verse 8. I'll just throw it out there. Verse 8. Everybody read verse 8 to themselves. Everybody read it? Okay. Who is speaking to whom? So I'm just throwing out one verse just to show you like, you know, like uh, that, that's the, the, the wonderful things about uh, Bible study. Like right there, we could probably, I, do you think we'd come to an agreement? Oh man, I would be loved to see all the disagreements we could come up with now. But we don't have time to do that, but I want to, okay? Because we're going to de- deal more with the idea of recovering from sin and how, what to do and what not to do. So if we, I'm going to go through this. Let's go, let's do this. First thing I want you to see as I want you to see in verse 1 and verse 2. 
right? I know these verses doesn't appear to go this way, but look, so, so let, let me make it very clear. I'm going to break this down in a way that may not be an accurate way to, uh, interp- to outline, because remember, an outline is supposed to be observational, not interpretive, right? But I'm just going to kind of break this down in a way where we can try to get to the main point that I want to get to. Because if we do this the right way, we'd be in Psalm 32 for the next six years, okay? Because, I mean, just trying to figure out verse 8 would take us who knows how long, right? We'd have to probably read the 37 different uh, arguments on how to interpret it, okay? But uh, for, this, for this sake, I want us to take verse 1 and 2, and I want us to note the ugliness of sin. I want us to note the ugliness of sin. I know you look at those verses more as a positive, but I want to pull the negative from them, all right? There's a negative here. And I want you to write down three words. You probably can figure out the three words. Blessed is he whose, write down the word transgression, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. You can put down guile as well if you want. So it would be four words if you would like. But the three main words are transgression, Sin and iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Those are the three that we want to look at. So let's just briefly, if you have the Blue Letter Bible app, let's just do a little work here in the Hebrew for all three. So we have a basic understanding of each word. Let's go first with the word transgression, right? Everybody see it there? Okay, Psalm 32. Let me pull this up. Okay. Um, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Let's look up the word transgression. It is this Hebrew word, transgression, this Hebrew word. Strong's H6588, Pesheh, Pesheh. All right, Pesheh, um, it is used how many times? 93 times, 84 times it is uh, translated transgression, uh, five times trespass, three times sin, and one time rebellion. Um, tra- Strong's definition, Pesha is a revolt, national, moral, or religious. Rebellion, sin, transgression, trespass. All right? It is a rebellion. It's a revolt. All right? So Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression, that shows you the ugliness of sin. When we sin, what is, what, it's a transgression. And what is that showing? What does that demonstrate? What is, that, what is our sin? It's a revolt. It's a rebellion against God. God gives us the standard. God gives us his law. And what do we do against it? We revolt. We rebel against it. Meaning, and we do this in what ways? Thought, word, Desire, feeling, action. Now we usually say thought, words, and deeds, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in the emotion and the feelings part of it as well. We rebel against God. Sometimes we don't rebel against God which way? Externally, we may, in other words, you may never rebel against God. In, there, there's always, the church is usually made up of a, a, a different groups of people, right? You've got some who may never transgress an action in any meaningful major way, right? They seem to have it all together. They look good, right? They look like they're the, the monks and the nuns. So they, they look like they're all godly, right? And, and, but internally, they're transgressing all kinds of different ways, right? And you've got others who are more willing to transgress outwardly. But both are transgressors. Now, do we see every, do you think we perceive everything as truly a transgression? I don't think we do. I don't think, I don't think we really, really perceive every, every sin is this major, like major rebellion, a major revolt against God. But every sin, no matter how small, is a rebellion and a revolt against God. And we don't sometimes see the ugliness of it, right? We don't feel the weight of it, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely when you're like, that's a, you're rebelling, you're revolting against God. You're like, no, I don't know if, I, I don't know if you want to go that far, right? Okay. The next word, the next word is sin. Now, let's go back to Psalm 32. 
right? Psalm 32. And in the word sin, the Hebrew word for sin is... Strong's H2401, Chata'ah, Chata'ah. Chata'ah, all right, Chata'ah. I would probably, I would say that completely wrong if we didn't listen to it. Chata'ah, it is uh, eight times, it's translated seven, or seven times it's translated sin. It's used eight times total and one time is sin uh, offering. Uh, Chata'ah is an offense or a sacrifice for it. So it can deal with a sin offering, but it's basically an offense. All right, that's, that's not as severe maybe as we would think, but it's, it's an offense to God. Who are we offending by our sin? We're God. We're offending God. Right? We're offending God. All right, the third word. What's the third word? Iniquity. Right? The Hebrew word for iniquity is this Hebrew word. Strong's age, 5771. Avon. 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 All right. Avon is used 230 times. 220 iniquity, five times for punishment, two times for fault, uh, iniquities, uh, one time, mischief, and sin. Strong's definition of Avon is perversity, moral evil, fault, iniquity, mischief, punishment of iniquity, sin. Perversity, depravity, iniquity, guilt of punishment, iniquity. So basically it's something perverse. It's a perversity. We're doing something which is perverse, which we would not want to be considered. I'm not doing anything perverse. Any sin is perverse, right? If we look up perverse, what's the English definition for perverse? Anybody, can we look up the English definition of perverse? Right? Deliberate, obstinate action. Okay, yeah. So we, we are perverse. There's God, right? He gives us the standard and we do that which is contrary to it. We don't even care. That's our sin. So there are three ways to, to just kind of, these words describe the ugliness of sin. And what are those three words? Transgression, sin, iniquity. And it shows us that we're rebels, Right? It shows us that we are moral failures and it shows us that we are perverse. And we don't want to be seen that way, do we? No. And, and not only do we not want to be seen that way, it's almost anathema in the Christian world to acknowledge we are still those things. Did, when you became a Christian, did you stop being a transgressor? And did you stop being a sinner? And did you stop committing iniquity? No, all of those three things are still true of us. So, let me now here's here's the million dollar question this morning. You ready? Our focus here is the ministry that should take place after. Right? After we've fallen, after we sin. Can we establish at least principle number one? We continue to sin all the time. All right? So that's just a very important principle. So the question is, once someone has fallen into sin, what then is the focus of the ministry to the person who falls into sin? What should the focus be in that ministry? Whether it's your self-ministry or ministering to someone else. What should be the focus of that ministry? If we were to ask a thousand Christians that question, what do you think the answer would be? All right, you think most Christians would say the focus of that ministry is forgiveness? Ah, there we go. The focus would be on... No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying if we just... just in life, that The focus would be... Stop the sin and how not to do it again. The focus would be on behavioral 
modification. Right, and if there's not immediate change, there's a high probability they're not saved. All right, so the focus, when Christians, so the angels show up to minister to Jesus. When we sometimes try to minister to ourselves with God after our sin, or we try to minister to someone else, it's almost like, how can we stop you from committing that sin again? How can we change your behavior? And I don't know. I, 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 I'm going to argue, maybe that's the wrong way. I know I'm about to get myself in trouble. We always just want people to stop doing the wrong. But my concern is, we're never going to stop doing the wrong. Ever. You say, well, I'll stop doing that wrong. Congratulations. Oh, my goodness gracious. Let's get you a trophy. Whoa, look at you. You stopped doing that wrong. <laughs> Do you love God with your heart, mind, body, and soul? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you holy as... I mean, I can just go... You're never going... Look, this is the... Dile- Christianity never wants to admit this dilemma. That's why we put forth such an, look, and I know we don't like to say this, but we put forth such an arrogant, like, character to the world. Because what we basically tell the world is, I used to be like you, but I'm no longer like you in the way we live. We live better than you. We're more godly than you. We're more righteous than you. The only problem is, all we really do is just change our behaviors, right? Right? It's like we, we, do, we do behavioral modification, but it's just we replace some sin with a different sin. I, I'm all for like, I'm not, I'm not saying if you stop that sin, it's a bad thing, but I'm, I'm mocking it because the point is, is you're like, look at me, but you're going to turn around and commit 15 other sins. So I don't know exactly how we process this. I know I'm not supposed to say this. I know I'm not supposed to talk this way. But I think it's time for the church to be honest with this. What should be the focus? What should be the focus? Because I've spent my whole Christian life that any time I commit a sin is then trying to figure out how I will not commit that sin again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to think that way again. I'm not going to desire that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. And, for, and it's like, it's, uh, it's almost like you're in a boat that's got a hole the size of a, of a small building and you've got a little bucket and you're just like, okay, get the water out, get the water out. And your whole Christian life is trying to get the water out of the boat. The boat's going down. Now, again, it all depends on how we look at sin. Because if I can transgress against God, rebel against God in thought, word, desire, feeling, and action, if I can sin against God in thought, word, desire, feeling, and action, and if I can do that which is perverse in thought, word, desire, feeling, and action, that changes my whole perception of sin. Because if I, if, I, if I reduce sin to something more external, I can look pretty good, right? I can look pretty good. And let's be honest, all religions are pretty good at dressing up the outside. Ever met a conservative Muslim? A committed Mormon? A committed Jehovah's Witness? Even a committed Catholic? They can all look really good on the outside. Can we not? Well, did they, do they have some power we don't? If a Muslim is so committed to their God, they're willing to strap a bomb on themselves, not saying all Muslims would do this, but in some cases, to commit jihad and go and blow up other people and kill themselves for their God, that's pretty committed. For an 18-year-old girl to say, I so love Jesus and love his church that I'm going to become a nun and take my vows, never have a boyfriend, never have anything, and give my entire life to prayer and worshiping of God. That seems pretty committed. Now, what some people say, well, that's false religion, and, and uh, Christianity is where the real power is. And yeah, you can't get Christians to read their Bible or listen to a sermon. 
I don't know how much power we supposedly have. But when we see our sin, I think we realize we've got to, I think, I think immediately you have to realize we need, a new, we need a new way of approaching it. I just don't know if the way to deal with failure, that, that when we come to, hey, I've sinned, what do I do now? And the first thought is always what? What can I do to stop sinning? When someone contacts me in an email and says, I'm struggling with sin, what they want are three steps to help them not commit the sin again. So then what do we go to? What are our go-to sins? What are our go-to solutions to sin? After someone has fallen, what is our go-to solutions? We tell them to pray more. Okay, right? Okay, there you go. We're never going to tell them to read their Bible more. I mean, that's, it doesn't matter. You can lose an arm and it'll be like, you need to pray and read your Bible more. That's how it works in Christianity. Like you pull up at a car wreck and someone's laying on the side of the road, their arm's missing. And like, I need help. Pray more and read your Bible more and make sure you join a small group. Okay? Right? That's our, our solution in Christianity for everything. And you think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. That literally is what? It, lose an arm? Pray more, read your Bible more, and join a small group. Right? Okay. Oh, we got to have the accountability, right? We got to have the accountability. So then we're going to put you possibly on lockdown, right? You can't look at this. You can't do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do. All right. We're going to try to stop it. Now, all of that is simply trying to do what? Control and modify behavior. And I just don't know if that's the way to go. I'm going to just. I'm going to throw out my hypotheses that I, I, I'm rejecting. That I think. I know I'm not supposed to do that. Am I saying there's never a place for that? I'm saying it should not be the priority. Now you say, well, then what is the priority? Well, good question. I'm waiting for you to get me the answer. I, I don't know. Let's go back to Psalm 32. Right? I think, do we see the... Do we see the iniquity uh, or the ugliness of sin? I think so, by, by three words. And what are those three words? Transgression, sin, and iniquity. All right? Now, what I want you to see in the text, right? we see those three words. What I want you to see next is I want you to see the pain of sin. I want you to see the pain. The, sin is ugly because of the pain that comes from it. And do we not see uh, this? Look, start in verse, I, I think verse three. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Okay, what, what does that seem to be describing? How does the NIV describe that? My bones wasted away through my what? Groaning. All right, so this seems to show the pain of sin is that it literally... It, it almost like there's a pain that comes from it. It's using, a, it's using poetic language, right? Obviously not their actual bones, right? But like a, a decaying, a wasting away inside, a groaning, a, the, like because of guilt, right? Look, the one thing that you can know is Christianity's morality will increase your sense of guilt. There is no way to get around that. So, so let, me, let me ask this. Let me throw this out there. That, that, that seems like a real pain, right? Like real pain, agony. Well, let, let's go. I, I think I've got an idea. I've got a hypothesis here now. I think I've got a solution. All right. Go to the next. So we got bones wax old. We got roaring. What else does he say? For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Meaning almost like What? He's dried up. He's wasting away. It, it's almost a description of what? Someone who's like been lost. They're in the desert and they're literally wasting away internally. They're drying up. They're dying. Almost a depression. Yeah, you could argue a mental depression, a spiritual depression. A, a, a great suffering is underway. This is very important. There is no way to get around it that if you are a Christian and you care about biblical morality and the law of God, you are going to find yourself in a perpetual state of guilt and feeling this way. So I wonder if, now just stay with me. This is just a theory. You can tell me if you agree. If after someone sins, the ministry that we need more than anything else from not only us, but from others, is not a ministry of behavioral change, but a ministry of forgiveness. 
that the focus has to be on receiving and feeling the forgiveness that comes from God. What do you think? Let's do something. We don't have a lot of time. Uh, We have Psalm 32, and we have Psalm 51, right? Those are the two major Psalms of David, of confessing his sin. Look at Psalm 51, and look at Psalm 32, all right? Let's go to Psalm 51 first. I'm just going to interrupt this sermon with a Bible study exercise, okay? All right? So I know when people listen online, they get irritated when I do this, but that's okay, all right? So here's what I want you to do. Y'all can talk to one another. You can just talk this through. I'm not going to walk you through it because, you know, I don't like doing that, right? I like you to, I want you to start skimming Psalm 51 and look at how many verses there speak of behavioral modification or behavioral change. And just, and just, you can write them down. How many that seem to focus on, I'm going to do this better, and I'm no longer going to watch women take a bath when I'm on the on their roof, and I'm no longer going to look at women, and I'm no longer, like, all of the things about behavioral change. I know you're skimming, so we may miss some, and those online who say we miss some, that's okay, you can email me, and I'll tell Twala that she messed up. Just skim through Psalm 51. I'm just curious. I'm just kind of running. I'm kind of testing my hypotheses in real time. I know we're not supposed to do this in church, but that's okay. I don't follow any of the rules that... I transgress all the rules given to me by the Christian world. The Christian world. I'm like, I'm going to do it my own way. Okay, what do you think the first verse is that could possibly go in this direction? Okay. Okay, what do you see in 7? Read Psalm 51, 7. Okay, now, I will argue that the purging and the washing is a positional purging and a washing. That's what I would argue. Okay. Now I know someone argue because we know this. After David confessed this, is he is he white as snow? And no, he's going to continue to sin. Right. In fact, he's going to he he's going to he's going to continue to commit adultery. If you think about it, yeah. he ends up. How many wives does David end up with? Yeah, I, that's adultery in most people's books, right? Okay, all right, all right. Let's <laughs> just say you say. So, well, he married all thirteen. Okay, then he's a polygamist. Okay, whatever you want. Okay, he's. He, it's not going to be. Put it this way: not only does he have the man killed, he gets the woman. Okay, all right. So, all right, all right. So, next one. Okay, well, let's read it. Let's read it. And now, I believe, we covered this, in, uh, I don't know how long ago, that I, I, I interpret Psalm 51.10 is that David here is morally, he's mainly confessing that this problem is so deep in me that it's my heart. So my only hope is a new heart. It's almost David, I don't, because I don't believe, now some people see, well, see, you get a new heart. I, 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 yeah, we can get into that whole debate. I think it's more David acknowledging the depth of the problem. It's not just the fact that he slept with a woman and had a husband killed. He's got a heart problem. All right. Next. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto Okay. Now, to me, that the only behavioral change that's, my, that's being spoken of here is I'm simply like, because of what I've done, I've learned, I'm going to teach others about what's happened to me. In other words, what, who's the best person to teach you about the problems of committing a certain sin? Possibly the person who's committed that sin. They may actually be the experts on it, all right? Okay, next. Right, right. 
But I mean, nothing about any like he's gonna. He's not gonna look at women anymore. He's gonna. He's gonna have someone go take a. You know, whenever he goes to the roof, he's gonna have three accountability partners, and he's gonna have an app that will shut everything down if he sees a woman taking a bath. Like I don't see any of that. Do you see any of those steps? Okay, right. Like I'm, I'm gonna pass an ordinance to make sure that you know uh, women can no longer take baths on the roofs. Like what? Like he doesn't. There's none of that. I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious or sarcastic. I'm just saying there is none of that even mentioned. He doesn't say I'm gonna do this better. I'm gonna do. And that, I, I didn't. Modern Christians would have gone right to. Well, why were you up at midnight? What? Well, you know what most pastors go to in the story of David? What does almost most pastors go after? Why wasn't he at war? He should have been at war. See, when we're not involved in spiritual war, then we're, we're, we're successful. We are vulnerable. There we go. We'll use that word. We are vulnerable to then temptation. See, like we, we look for all of these behavioral modifications. We look for all these behavioral modifications. Well, well, why? Like, oh, man, it's just so weird how we approach the subject. All right. So we didn't see anything there, right? All right. Okay. Go to Psalm 32. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to post the Ten Commandments on the roof. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to put a sign on the door. You know, um, I'm going to set no unclean thing before my eyes. I've seen Christian men do that on their computer. They'll put the uh, Bible verse about, I'm not going to set any unclean thing before my eyes. Well, because, you know, that's going to fix all the problems. I, I don't know. It's just all these things. I've got no problem. You can do all of this stuff. I just think our focus becomes on behavioral modification. Psalm 32. What do we find? I don't think in either psalm you really have what you would think you would look for, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to do this. There's none of that. Now, I'm always fascinated by what the Bible gives and what the church does. Sometimes the disconnect between the two is startling to me. Because you know why? Listen to me. This is very important. Okay, never forget this. There will be... There will always be a difference between these two things. You ready? Churchianity, Christianity. Churchianity is what we do with the Bible. Christianity is the truth of the Bible. Churchianity, we have turned it into, it's an entire industry, is it not? You struggle with this sin, here's the 17 steps you take. How to be, how to do this, how to do this, how to do this. How, and it's always all of these steps. And it always focuses on behavioral change, accountability, and doing things better so you will stop committing that sin. Now, I'm not saying that they ignore the other. I'm just saying that maybe they will talk about the other, but it almost, it's almost like, okay, 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 God will forgive you. Now, immediately, let's get to... Let's get to behavioral modification. Let's get to accountability. And I just think that maybe we've gotten it all wrong. I think the behavior that we have to focus on is the behavior that focuses on forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration to a right relationship with God. We have to maintain, and when I say, oh, me state it, I'll use this term, right fellowship with God. We'll use that term, right? Just because I don't want people to think you, you know, lose your salvation because that would obviously would turn into a workspace system, which then we would all go to hell. So that doesn't work. So a right fellowship with God. Now, go back to Psalm 32. We're not going to be able to finish this up, but that's okay. We're, we're at least bringing up, uh, uh, I think, an imp- important thing here. All right? Now, we see the ugliness of sin. What three words gives us the ugliness of sin? Transgression, sin, and iniquity. All right, we get the uh, pain of sin, right? The pain that comes from sin, right? And that pain is described in very descriptive terms, yes? All right, bones waxed old, roaring, moisture turned into drought. All right? Now, the third thing I want you to see 
is I think the, uh, how, the ugliness of sin, the pain of sin, uh, what do I want to call this? How to deal with sin. Let's just deal with that. How to deal with sin. How to deal with sin. And I don't believe the focus is on behavioral modification, accountability, and I don't believe it's in reading your Bible more, praying more, or doing anything that more. I think what you immediately have to focus on is your relationship with God. And there's a little bit of a hint to it, right? Note uh, verse 3. When I kept silent, the, the, what we need to do after we fall is we cannot remain silent. We must confess to God. I think what we need is our focus must be on confessing and uh, confessing and being open to God about the reality of our sin. We need to focus on just making things right with God. We have to confess. Psalm 51, we get a confession, do we not? Here, we kind of get a hint of it again. Look at verse 5. I acknowledge, there's the word sin, unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my... Oh, wait, do we get the same three words? Oh, look at that. The ugliness of sin must be confessed in an open way that acknowledges its ugliness. The focus must be on confession and forgiveness, not on behavioral modification. When we remain silent before God, what happens? There's a brokenness between us and God. And that's the thing that must be fixed. What we want to do is fix the behavior. We must fix this. We have to be in a right relationship with God. So go through that verse again. That verse may be the key. Because all the ugliness of sin is now, what does he do with it? I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity, my perverseness, have I not hid? He's not hiding the perversity of it. Now, to not, what does it mean not to hide your perversity? It means to speak it to God. Like, directly tell God what the perverse thing you desire you want. Say it. Don't just think it. Say it to God. Next. And my transgressions unto thee, Lord. In other words, I'm going to tell you my sin. I'm going to tell you my perversity. I'm going to tell you my rebellion. And not just what I have done externally. I'm going to be honest with you internally. See, when you confess this to God, you're, you're doing what? You're saying what you would never say to, what, what, to anyone else. You're telling God what you would never speak to anyone else. What you may not even want to acknowledge to yourself. Because the problem is usually deeper than what you want to admit. Right? It's not just I have failed. I have failed because I want to fail. I failed because I desire to fail. I failed because God, I want that more than I want you. Now that's sometimes we're not willing to say. We just like to say, God, forgive me for... All my sins. This is what we need is to become before God in a broken, humbled way where we can acknowledge how really messed up we are. And I don't know about you, I am really messed up. Now, I can either pretend that I'm not or I can tell God how messed up I am because he already knows. Now you say, well, shouldn't that change your behavior? None of these chapters mention the change of behavior. The focus is on getting things right with God. So there is forgiveness or there's confession, right? Confession, that's where we, listen, confession is where we speak to God the truth of our sin. Confession is where I speak the truth to God of my sin. I don't just, I don't dress it up, cover it up. I, I just speak the truth of it. Ugly, no matter how ugly it may be. 
All right, then go back to Psalm 32. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And thou forgavest it. Then comes the forgiveness. Now, what, what I want you to do, okay, let's do this really quick because we're going to run out of time. In fact, we're out of time. I'm just going to have a chance to mention this. Look at the blessing of forgiveness. We see the ugliness of sin, the pain of sin. We see what we are to do after our sin, which is confess, right? And then look at the blessing of forgiveness. And now the blessing of forgiveness is shown in verses 1 through 2, right? Blessed is, is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's forgiven. Verse, uh, verse 1, sin is covered. It is covered. It's completely covered. Nobody, in other words, what is it covered by? Not only the blood, it's covered by his righteousness. Right? And then next, blessed is the man whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. There's the word imputeth, right? That's a very important word. In other words, what happens? When I confess, God forgives, God covers, and he no longer imputes my iniquity to my account. In other words, before God, I am no longer seen as a transgressor. I'm no longer seen as one of sin because what is imputed to me? The righteousness of Christ. That's the blessings that come from it. And then uh, Twyla mentioned verse 5. Um, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He, he, he brings in forgiveness, and he mentions at least two of them again. And then th- if you think about it, in a roundabout way, I don't have time to go through it all, but look at verse 7. This is more of the blessings that from it, because now that all of my sins have been forgiven, now I'm declared righteous, where is my hiding place? God is now my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt encompass me with the songs of deliverance. Why? Because I'm completely covered in him. I've been set free from that sin. Now, in verse 8, I don't know what you want to do with that. I will instruct thee and teach thee. I don't know who he's instructing and teaching. Is he saying he's going to instruct others? Or he's saying God is God? I don't know what's going on there, okay? And then, uh, and then and, but I guess in this one, verse 9 would be the one of some behavioral modification. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with a bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but I'm going to argue this about verse 9. And we'll end with this. Tell me if you agree or disagree. The reason the bridle has to be put in the horse's mouth is to lead it to where you want it to go, right? David had been what? He didn't go to where he needed to go. Where did he need to go? To the Lord for what? To confess and for forgiveness. So in other words, I don't need to be, I don't need someone to put a bridle in my mouth and lead me to God for forgiveness. I should come running to him to confess, to receive that forgiveness, So maybe, now you could argue maybe there's behavioral modification there, but if the behavioral modification is there, what's the behavior that needs to be changed? Come to God when you sin. Don't stay silent. Run to him. Now, I know every preacher in the world is going to just go, absolutely not. This is where you go in for the kill, and you tell people to change their behavior. Okay, well, you can yell and scream to change the behavior. I, here, you know what I know is going to happen? I could yell and scream all day about avoiding sin. But you know what all you are going to go do this week? Sin. So oh, guess what? I can yell and scream that we need behavioral modification. But the behavioral modification is never going to be perfect or complete. So what do we need? To run to God for forgiveness. Right? We need mercy. We need compassion. Oh, what did you quote? Verse He says, mercy yeah. will come. That's what we need. We need mercy. We need mercy. I'm not saying, don't, I'm not saying go and sin. I'm just saying the reality is we, we've tried, Christians have tried for 2,000 years all the behavioral modifications. 
And the church is still filled with sin, 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 sin. So we yell and scream and yell and scream and yell and scream. And then guess what? People continue sin. And ultimately what happens is you create a atmosphere for self-righteousness where everyone has to put on a robe of fake righteousness to pretend that we're more godly than they are and nobody can admit how messed up we are. I just read, uh, and in fact, I'll have, the, uh, I'll, have um, I'll probably do a podcast about it if anybody cares, but uh, there was this article that was posted yesterday, I think on one of the Christian websites, and it gave five things that a pastor is to never do pastor is to never do, right, from the pulpit. Pastor, the pastor is to never do from the pulpit. I violate all of them, right? I don't think I follow one of these rules because I think it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, right? Or seven things a pastor cannot do from the pulpit, right? Okay, all right. So uh, I cannot recommend a book with questionable material, Okay, I do that all the time. I tell you to go read everything from the Satanic Bible to the Da Vinci Code to anything else, all right? Okay, I don't ever mention, I'm not to ever mention a movie that could have anything bad in it. Okay, right? Never to do that. Um, I cannot, uh, I can't bring anyone into the pulpit, even for an interview whose life is a contradiction to the way of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm, my life is a contradiction to the way of Jesus Christ, so I can't even come into the pulpit. I would love to see the person who wrote this article because all of our lives is a contradiction in some way, is it not? That's just ridiculous. Um, I cannot preach that he disbelieves certain scriptures, never to do that, and I tell you all the time. I may not tell you I disbelieve scripture, but I will tell you all the time that I've got major problems with it, right? I'm sorry, I've got major problems with the book of Job. I do not understand Genesis 1-1, so I don't, I don't follow that, right? I cannot share my doubts, that's just trash. You know, I always share my doubts, right? Because I, I don't get that. And guess what? I can never tell the congregation that I struggle with, with any, basically any kind of major sin. You can't tell them you struggle with porn. You can't str- tell them you struggle with lust. A pastor is never to do that. Meaning what then? No, that I have to come up here pretending to be what? And I'm going to struggle with all of it in private. Okay? Now, I understand that you don't want to get up and, and tell everyone, hey, you know what I was doing last night? I, I, I'm, you don't want to necessarily do that. But I think it's complete trash that the church constantly creates this atmosphere where everyone has to pretend to be more godly than we are. Everyone in this room is a sinner. You may not struggle with my sin. I may not struggle with your sin, but we're all going to sin. And until we can have an atmosphere where we're open and honest with that. So I think the first thing that we have to do when we sin and we fall, because we're going to sin and fall, is we need to confess that to God in a powerful, unique, personal way where you're just being truthful to God. And we need to do it on a regular and consistent basis. And when it comes to other people, what do we need to do with other people? We need to lead them to Christ. Because in most cases, we can already see that the people are already broken over their sin, so they don't need to do more. What they need to do is come to Christ to receive forgiveness. Now, what should that blessing of forgiveness lead to? Hopefully, because of that blessing, and because of that gratitude, and because of that mercy, we will desire to follow him. But guess what? If you think it's as simple as you're never going to sin again, you're ridiculous. It's just not going to happen. So I think the focus has to be less on behavioral modification and more on getting things right with God because I believe that is the key. I think that will change the heart. Behavioral modification for it to work has to be driven by what? An internal change. Right? The fear, behavioral modification that is controlled by an outside authority or the fear of punishment only lasts until that is not present. Correct? It's the, for, uh, uh, the only thing I can say is, and I'm not saying this perfectly works in children because you know, they're, they're, they're rebels and sinners just like we all are. But you know, if you think about it, A child who says, I so love my parents and so respect them and I would never want to hurt them, would they not be more likely to not do those things that would hurt you and and, and get into trouble 
out of respect for you, would that work better than, oh, I'm going to get grounded or get in trouble? Now, I know reality is sometimes you have to do the grounding and get in trouble because the other's not happening, right? Okay. But the point is, the other will only work for how long? Until you can ground and get in trouble. And at some point, when that's no longer there, what will manifest itself? What's really inside. And that's true of all of us. So at some point, all the behavioral modification will only maybe slow something down, but if the heart, I hate to quote pop songs, but the heart wants what the heart wants. And what the heart wants is sin. Confess that to God, develop a closer relationship with God, and out of gratitude and love and respect for God, maybe that will motivate less of a pursuit of sin and more of a pursuit of him. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. This afternoon, uh, Lord, we take just a few moments, pray for Bojena and her mom in Germany as uh, she's trying to recover. We pray that that entire situation, Lord, you just help in that. Uh, The sufferings and pains of life are difficult, uh, not only for the people suffering, but for the family members who are there to try to help. So we ask you to be there. And Lord, with special prayer this afternoon for the Shires and the tragedy uh, of losing a son at that age, we pray for them. We pray for all the people involved, and we just continue to pray uh, for the church and uh, help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...